Thank you, Nick, for leading us today, and thank you also for all the, all the ways in which people volunteer. I could thank also so many people next door that are watching kids and investing time to serve even this group. I'm so grateful for even greeters and uh, AV and so many people that go into making this morning possible. The new year is a time where really it's a good time to ask some questions that are core, some fundamental questions uh, that are at the core of who we are and what we do. Questions like, what, why does Ogletown Baptist Church exist? What is our mission? Is it to be a service provider for religious activities? Is it to be kind of a place where anybody and everybody can have some sort of spiritual experience? Is it a, a place where you can get some help and, and maybe some self-help, some moral improvement, some transformation you want to make in your own life? And this might be uh, an ally in helping you to take care of business in your own soul. When it comes to our church, what is core? What should never change? What should our church be concentrated on maybe in the next uh, 12 weeks or 12 months or even 12 years? What is important? What should be our priorities? One thing that's helpful when we come to God's Word is that we get to look at the very beginnings of the Christian church. I'm, I'm not just talking about Ogletown. We look at the beginnings when Jesus Christ founded the church We can see things at the very beginning that remain important and crucial for us today. If you know the Bible, if you're familiar with it, you know that the story of the early church, the the beginnings of the church, it's found in what's called in the Bible the book of Acts. And we're going to take a few weeks to walk through at least the first portion of the book of Acts. But, But you need to know Acts is really part two. It's part one is the gospel of Luke. And Luke and Acts are written by the same author, so they're connected. There's similar themes. You can, you can really tell some things are going on. And because it's a two-part, you know how two-part episodes of uh, shows go, don't you? You know, a lot of times with part one, at the end of that, they're going to say, next time on this particular show, and they'll show a few scenes that will help draw you into part two. And then when part two is finally shown, they'll say, previously on whatever show, and they'll draw you in. What they're doing is kind of creating a seam between these two parts and saying, like, really, there's one story, and here is how they are stitched together. What I want us to do, I mention that because what I want us to do is read the end of the Gospel of Luke, which is part one of Luke's story, and the beginning of Acts, which is part two. We're going to read from Luke 24. Normally, we just kind of stay in one passage, but I'm going to ask Vern to come and read, and he's going to read the end of Luke 24, beginning in verse 44. He's going to read to the end of that chapter. Then he's going to pick up in Acts chapter 1, which is like one book over. So you've got Luke, Luke, John, and then Acts, and read a few verses in Acts 1. Vern, read for us. Okay, the first passage is Luke 24, verses 44 through 49. Then he, Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed 
in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. In the first book, O Theophilus, I, Luke, have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had command, given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Yeah, thank you so much for reading, Vern. Did you see the scene? Did you see how the end of Luke, the beginning of Acts, how they are woven together? And there's a word that I want to be in our mind because we are at the beginnings of the church, and I want us to see if we could sum up what the church is, what the church is meant to be. I'd love to sum it up. There are many words we could use, but I, I love this word. The church is propelled. That is what you're going to see in Acts you're going to see a church that is propelled. And by that, let me give a definition. So again, there are multiple definitions we could focus on, but I love this definition. Propelled means to be driven forward by a force. I'm going to do a little bit of editing because I think it's more than a force. It is a person who is a force, but it is a person. We're driven forward by a person that imparts motion. So since the book of Acts we are a group of people who have been propelled, driven forward by a person that imparts motion. We're going to look at the idea of being propelled and what should propel the church? What did propel the church? What should propel Ogletown? The first thing that I want you to see that propels the church is the fact that Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. And in the Bible, this is presented as fact. It's not an allegory. It's not symbolism. It's literal. It's real. In Acts 20, or in Luke 24, Jesus, the passage right before what Vern read, the passage right before that, Jesus is eating and he's drinking and he's appearing to his friends. They're hearing him speak. In Acts chapter 1-3, it says, he presented himself alive to them. We have to make sure there's no mistakes. Christians are not just people that are really committed to the teachings of Jesus. We are. We're 100% committed to the teachings of Jesus. It's just there's more than that. 
We, we haven't just bought into his ideology or his philosophy. We don't just really believe the world would be a better place if there were more people like Jesus out there. All that could go without saying, that's not the essence of Christianity. We don't cite him as we would the, a framer of the Constitution, a wise voice from the past. We don't read him as we would read some writings from a, from a poet or a 17th century philosopher. We see it this way. The presentation is of a dead man who is now alive. A dead man who is now alive. And God planned this. God planned the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what Scripture tells us. It was prophesied years before. And Jesus told them days and weeks before that he would go to the cross, that he would die, but that he would rise again. That's why in Luke chapter 24 and verse 44, Jesus says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything about me that was written in the law of Moses in the prophets and the Psalms had to be fulfilled, had to be filled to the fullest extent. I don't know if there's a better description of the Old Testament than the law of Moses, which is Genesis through Deuteronomy, all the prophets and the Psalms, which represent the, the wisdom literature. It's the history, the wisdom, the prophetic words of God, all of that in the first 39 books of our Bible. All of that, all of that was about Jesus. All of that was pointing to him. A dead man who came back to life. A dead man who came back to life and people saw it. In Luke chapter 24 and verse 48, he says, you are witnesses of these things. Jesus wasn't just a, an imaginary friend that reappeared from time to time. He was a person that was dead and people watched him die and came back to life. It says even in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, he presented himself by many proofs. He appeared to them. Those proofs weren't merely to convince skeptics. They were also to reassure believers, to set something in motion that actually changes the world. Something that had never happened, just happened. Sometimes in our age, we can, we can have a wrong perspective on this. Maybe, maybe you even in here say, you know, Curtis, I am pretty skeptical of dead people coming back to life again. Maybe people believed that 2,000 years ago, but we've kind of, we've evolved. We were at a different place now, and so I just find myself skeptical that dead people would come back to life. Well, actually, you join the company of many people in the Bible who first heard this message that a dead man was living. This isn't a, a new thing to wonder, how can this happen? This is always the question. It's a legitimate question. How does this happen? And what Scripture says is the power of God raises Jesus from the dead. He is alive, and this propels the church. The church is never just kind of a, an association that tries to give back in the best way possible. That's never just at the core of who the church is. Sure, we want to do good things in our, in, in our world, in our neighborhood, but we're more than just a, a PTA or a civic association or a neighborhood association just trying to do a lot of good things to give back to our world. We're a group of people gathered around the fact that we know, we know Jesus is alive. We know he is alive. We sang about it this morning. The question is like, but what does that mean? So the Bible starts by saying it's a fact. Jesus was dead and now is alive. But the question becomes like, what does that mean? And meaning is important. I could tell you lots of facts. I mean, we could, we could talk about uh, the, uh, a fact just by an analogy. I could say 
you know, a person carried some strips of leather sewn together across a white painted line, and thousands of people yelled about it. What does that mean? Well, you put that into the context of saying, yeah, the strips of leather sewn together, that was a football. And the person who carried it across the white painted line, that was scoring a touchdown. And lots of people cheered and lots of people were saying, that's my team, I'm invested in this, I, I love when this happens, I celebrate when this happens, this means the world to me that my team scored. Well, now the meaning changes even how we see the event. And actually, as we see the event, the fact that Jesus is alive, what does it mean? What it means is that a new era has dawned. This is what propels the church. A new era has arrived. This is more than just a, a message we trot out at Easter or, or some other holiday. Jesus actually wants them to understand this means something that I am alive. That's why in Luke chapter 24, verse 45, he opens their mind to understand the Scriptures. You begin reading in part one of Luke-Acts. In part one, in Luke 1, you, you begin seeing like something different is happening. Things are being shook up. Things will never quite be the same. Now, at this moment when Jesus is speaking these words, things have been fulfilled. Christ has suffered. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. And he appeared to them over 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God. And now he is taken up into heaven. That's what scripture says. He has ascended to heaven. He ascends to the throne of heaven where he rules. What an amazing thing because Luke 1 and 2 start with just humble beginnings with, with Mary, the most unlikely candidate to introduce this story to the world. And now it ends with Jesus enthroned, reigning, ruling, in charge in heaven. This is the era where he has accomplished something and is accomplishing things. A new era has dawned, and it's the most important thing in the world. We have to correct ourselves because there will always be breaking news that will say, this is the most important thing you need to think about right now. There will always be some update, some alert that says, this is the most important thing you need to listen to, pay attention to. And Scripture says, not in this new era, the most important thing for your life the thing that will be remembered millions of years in eternity is not whatever prompts on your newsfeed today, but it's that Jesus is alive, and that's ushered in something entirely new. In history, there are days that change things. So a previous generation might say, I remember, I remember the day Pearl Harbor was bombed, and that changed things. My generation, other, other generations would say, I remember September 11th, and I can remember how that changed things, how things were very, very different post 9-11. Sometimes it's not even like bad things or tragedies that happen to a nation. Sometimes it's just like the automobile or the, the smartphone, things that just you can say that changed things. Well, when we come to the resurrection of Jesus for all time, for all people, this changes things. What does it mean? It means in Acts chapter 2, that Jesus is God's eternal king. It means in Acts chapter 9 that Jesus is the, the head of his body, which is called the church. It means that he is the fulfillment of God's promises. All of God's promises find their fulfillment, their yes in him in Acts 13 and Acts 17. It means that Jesus is now the judge of the world. We haven't seen yet the full dimensions of the rule and reign of Jesus, but we look forward to that day when everything is put under his feet. But for now, 
He is still ruling. His rule has started. And when Jesus is reigning, the amazing things happen. All you have to do is read through the book of Luke. And the vulnerable and the outcasts are actually welcomed in. They're not sidelined and marginalized anymore. When Jesus is reigning, the lost are found. When Jesus is reigning, surprising people become believers. When Jesus is reigning, enemies are loved. When Jesus is reigning, those who have been forgiven much extend forgiveness. What a reign. What does this mean? Does it drive me? Does it drive me, the fact that Jesus is alive? Does this suffering and death, does it make it into my day in any way, shape, or form? The fact that my king bled for me. This is the fact that he did that for my sin, my forgiveness, my freedom, my life to never be the same. Is that like a stake in the ground in my life? Would, would anybody be able to tell it? Does his resurrection fill us with hope and encouragement and stability and power? Because we know our king is in charge and he's alive. Are we able to say, because he lives, I can face tomorrow? Because he lives, all my fear is gone. Are we able to say, as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me? There's no guilt in life, no fear in death. Do these kind of thoughts make it into our day? Wait a minute, Jesus is alive. In his reign that he's taken up, he has ascended to heaven, he is ruling and reigning there. Do I realize that because of that, he now calls the shots? Do I realize that he has a say in how I spend my money? Do I realize that he has a say in what my relationship should look like? Do I recognize that King Jesus has called on me to love God with all of my heart and all of my soul and to love my neighbor as myself? Does the fact that he is king of everything affect what I desire? Does it shape what I want? Does it what is it going to take for me to be filled with joy and satisfied? Does that revolve around him? Am I going to live for myself? Or am I going to live a life for him of sacrifice and care? What is the meaning of my life? You know how we could really tell? This is how we could really tell. You and I could spend, I don't know, it'd probably take more than a few days because we would be, maybe a few, few hours, because we would be on our best behavior. But if we spent a few days together, eventually what mattered to us would come out, wouldn't it? Eventually, you would see, this is how he makes decisions. Eventually, I would see, this is what makes her tick. This is what makes him tick. This is how he kind of frames the world. This is, this is what he does under stress. This is, what, this is what she does and how she treats people in light of what she really believes. This is what she chooses. This is what he chooses to digest and soak and think about and concentrate on. This is what he freely gives his attention to when there's no constraint. Wouldn't all of that suggest that Jesus really matters to me? That the fact that he is alive. So, yeah, I talk to him. Yeah, I read about him. Yeah, I, I take decisions and I bring it into this kind of picture what does it mean that Jesus is Lord and reigning? Jesus is alive. It's a new era, and it just propels the church. But it propels them to work that's yet to be done. So there's a real sense, Jesus says, it is finished. And what his work on the cross, it is finished. There's no more we're going to add to it. But then he gives work to his disciples, 
And he tells us there are things for us to do, but he says there, there's things not yet done, and there's actually a person that has not yet come when Jesus is teaching and telling his disciples. We know since that actually that person has come, but listen to how Luke 24, 49 says, I am going to send the promise of my Father upon you, and you're going to be clothed with power from on high. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 4, it says, He ordered them to wait for the promise of the Father. And he said, John baptized with water, but you are going to be baptized. You are going to be immersed with the Holy Spirit. And it's going to happen in not too many days. In Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. We are propelled because the Holy Spirit has been sent. Jesus is going to be present with His people through His Spirit. They're told to wait. They're told to wait for the promise of the Father. Uh, they're told to wait because Jesus is going to send another comforter, another, another advocate for them. They're, they're told to wait because there's going to become, there's, go, there's going to be power from on high that's going to rest on them, and that's going to change everything in them. The life of believers is going to be one of being baptized, immersed with the Holy Spirit. And this isn't something like we, we're trying to work toward or earn. It's a, it's a gift from the Father that gives us new heart, a, a new love, new affections, new priorities, new life. Begins taking gifts that He has given and animates those for the benefit of the church, the disciples. The disciples are not just inspired by the memory of Jesus. They're not just remembering like, boy, we remember when Jesus said these things and but he died, and he's not around, so we'll just try to do some things in his memory. That's actually not the way Acts goes. They're not inspired by the memory of Jesus. They're empowered by the presence of Jesus working through the Holy Spirit. They have power from on high. It's not some inner state of consciousness that they've arrived at. It's power that's come on high. It causes us to take note. God is going to do his work through humans. None of us are perfect. He's going to do His work through imperfect humans. But He's going to do so with power that He gives. We're not relying on our ingenuity, our own creativity, our own capacity, our own perseverance. We're praying because we know He is giving us power. We're not just even tapping into spiritual energy somewhere out there. We are talking to a person who's been promised to us. The Holy Spirit has been sent, and that just propels people, propels a church. There's one more thing I want us to see that propels us, and that is the apostles have a task. The apostles have a task. The Holy Spirit has been sent, so that not many days. Yeah, the Holy Spirit came. We'll talk about that more in weeks to come. And that meant that the apostles have a task. A lot, a lot was given to the apostles of what they should do, how they should proceed. We'll talk over the next few weeks how Acts grows, how the church gets organized, how it spreads geographically, how it grows, how more and more people are added to this thing called church. But nothing ever displaces or replaces the task that the apostles were given by Jesus. Each of the apostles is given a task, and that is to bear witness to who Jesus is and what he's done. But I, but I said the apostles have a task. What does that mean for you and I? 
What does that mean for us who are not the eyewitnesses of Jesus like the 12 apostles were? Who are not the ones personally chosen by Jesus to be one of the 12 while he was in a physical body? What, what does this mean? Actually, what it means is we are called to take the eyewitness accounts and faithfully tell them again and again and again to another generation and more people everywhere. We spread their message. So what I don't have liberty to do is take artistic license and say, I'm grateful for Peter, James, and John. They got us so far, but I'm going to add a few things of my own to this. No, actually, I take the message that they received. They're eyewitnesses. They tell us what they saw. They tell us what they did. And we open up our Bibles and we're reading the eyewitnesses' accounts. We, we hear what Jesus told them to tell us. And we're faithful to that. And by the way, it's not just the apostles who have the Spirit because by the time you read through the book of Acts, you read of more people being filled with the Spirit, more people being involved in this task, people who had not seen Jesus like we have not seen Jesus with our own eyes. You read of Stephen and Barnabas. You read of Philip and Lydia. You read of Aquila and Priscilla, and Apollos, and it goes on and on of people that heard the apostles' message, understood the apostles' task, and said, wait a minute, our task is to spread that same message. Our task is to tell people Jesus is alive. The apostles have a task of bearing witness to the fact that Jesus is alive, a new era has dawned, and they have responsibility, like I have a responsibility to tell you that means something for you. It says in Luke 24, repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be preached, should be proclaimed to all nations. So in that, in that vein, I'm saying because Jesus is alive, forgiveness is available. If you will turn from everything else and trust in Him, you can have hope, you can have life, you can Put your life in the hands of the one who rules the world, the one who loved you so much that he bled for you. Repentance, you should turn from everything else. You should trust in him. We all should put our trust in him. We should depend on him. And we will receive forgiveness. That should be preached. And then what goes on in Matthew 28, we have a task to not just make that message known, but to, to make disciples, to make learners, to followers of Jesus who will be baptized and welcomed into the family of God, who will be taught to do everything that Jesus said to do. We'll live as a community that displays together the glory of God. That's the task. And Scripture promises that task will get accomplished. Jesus says, you will be witnesses. The story may have many obstacles, but God will prevail. The Word will prevail. The church will go forward and people embrace Jesus as their Lord. What is the mission of our church? If we answer that question without Jesus being alive, if we answer that question and we don't recognize a new era has dawned, if we answer that question and we don't recognize the Holy Spirit has come, if we, if we answer that question and don't realize the task we have been given, then we miss the mark something amazing as I was reading and rereading this again. It's pretty amazing to me that you can pinpoint in history exactly when and where Jesus came. There are historical records that are going to say, in this area of Palestine, this is where he was born. This is where he lived in Galilee. 
This is where he was executed. This is where people said they saw him alive after he had been executed. I would think for a lot of people living even in Palestine in that, that time, the life, the miracles, the work of Jesus may have not seemed the most relevant thing. But then it's astonishing, isn't it, that that just one man, that message of who he is and what he's done, just transcends even that place in Palestine, this powerful message of the risen Jesus. We know what happened. History records what happened. That message wasn't just for one nation, but it moved from nation to nation, culture to culture, language to language, people group to people group, generation to generation to generation to generation. And here we are as a church, and that task extends to us to make sure this world knows that Jesus is alive and a new era has dawned. Church, let's give our life to that task. Let's order everything around that reality. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for showing us the beginnings. Thank you for correcting whatever ideas we might have taken in from our culture about what church is about. Forgive us, Lord, where we make the resurrection of Jesus marginal to what church means to us. I pray that you would be front and center. I pray that that message that Jesus is alive and repentance and forgiveness is available. Oh, Lord, how I pray that that would just pulsate at Ogletown throughout this whole year. We would measure our pulse by how eager we are to share that message, how eager we are to rejoice in the fact that the Holy Spirit has empowered us, that we would give ourselves again to that task or do this to make Jesus' name great. And we ask all this in his name. Amen.